Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I'd like to welcome you to my much-anticipated interview with Kate Moore. Hi, Kate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Yes, yes, absolutely. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon. You can learn more about the show at my website, marchtwisdale.com, where you can also catch up on shows that you've missed. Thank you very much for joining us. And let's see here. Kate, can you go ahead and give everyone a brief sense of who you are, what you do, sort of ground yourself for my audience? Sure. Well, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm a British writer and I'm an author of several different books in varying genres. I write everything from history and biography to humor and gift books. I'm also a ghostwriter and a book editor. And my background is actually in book publishing. So I used to work in-house in publishing companies as an editor, most recently as an editorial director at Penguin Random House in the UK before I became a freelance professional writer. And the reason you've invited me on your show today is because of my latest book, which is called The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. It was published in the States earlier this year. And to my delight and astonishment, it's become a New York Times bestseller. And it's a history book about the most amazing American women you could ever hope to meet. Right. Oh my gosh, you're right. So like a history book that ends up on the bestseller list, that is pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. I still can't believe it. It's the total pinch yourself, dream come true moment for me. Well, I'm completely not surprised though. I mean, as you say, you do a wide array of writing. And so it's like there are books that are big and scary to read and dense and heavy. And then there are books yeah. that are just completely accessible, even though they're chock full of a bunch of really fascinating information, I'd say you're number two on that list. Thanks. Yes. And, th and that's absolutely what I was aiming for with this book and what I aim for with all my writing. You know, I'm a commercial nonfiction writer. I write stories of, you know, people with real voices and real experiences. And I want anyone to be able to pick them up up. And with this story in particular, uh, The Radium Girls, it is a story that is packed full of science with law and history. And I'm not a scientist or a historian. And what I wanted to do was put the real women at the center of the book so that readers can meet them almost as friends. And so that it is a very accessible book. It reads like a novel rather than a history book. Mm -hmm. You know, the women are characters, there's twists, there's turns. And my aim with writing it was that readers could go on the journey with the Radium Girls themselves. I can say that it, you were definitely very effective because my husband read the book before I did. I was mm. actually just a little bit a little bit hesitant because I'm sort of careful about reading things that are true and mm. and can be a bit heartbreaking in a way, even though and it's this a, is heartbreaking. This it, is heartbreaking. Yes. Yeah. Even though it's also empowering, these women had to suffer terribly for us to gain the value that we gain. We'll get more into that later. But my husband was brought to tears a few times reading the book. That's amazing. So what happened to these women 
and why it matters so much for people who are alive today to fully understand what was going on 120 years ago and also the lasting effects of their bravery and what they were able to do for the society um, that would be born beyond them. So why don't you go ahead and briefly tell the audience sort of just the core of what the story is about. Sure. Well, as you say, the the story starts 120 years ago, which is when radium was first discovered. So it was discovered in December 1898 by Madame Curie. And the book then skips forward to its chapter one, which opens in 1917. So we're talking the First World War and the book goes on um, to get into the Roaring Twenties and the 1930s too. And the reason it opens in 1917 is because America is about to join the First World War. And as you can anticipate, joining that global conflict has a massive boost to all sorts of industries and the radium industry is not alone and the radium girls are the american women who used to paint watches clocks and dials so they could be dials on dashboards of planes of automobiles of ships and the radium girls painted these dials with luminous radium paint and they were taught to lip point. That was the technique they used. So they would twirl their paintbrushes between their lips to make a fine point because the numbers they were painting on these dials were absolutely minute in size at times. If you think of your own wristwatch and how small that number is, the girls had to trace the numbers with the paint. In so putting the brush in their mouths, they were ingesting the radium. Mm-hmm. Now, at this time, it's very important to say that radium at at this time, you know, in the time of the First World War and the Roaring Twenties, was seen as a wonder drug. People didn't realize, didn't appreciate that the radioactivity in radium was poisonous. And so it was celebrated as a wonder element and a cure-all. Entrepreneurs wanted to harness that power. And so people looked at radium and the radioactivity and they thought, well, you know, what can we do with this? And they actually saw radium as a potential giver of immortality. I read newspaper articles, for example, in the Newark Evening News that was urging its readers to eat radium tablets because it said the radium would add years to our lives. And so at that time, radium was put in everything from chocolate and butter and milk to cosmetics to lingerie to boost your sex life. You could buy it, um, you know, in the drugstores to treat everything from hay fever to gout. But people also took it as a kind of vitamin. You know, you, you could go to radium clinics and spas, for example. Right. And the rich and famous drank radium infused water as like a health tonic. Mm-hmm. And so the radium girls who were tended to be poor working class teenage women, often the daughters of granddaughters of immigrants they were recruited into these dial painting studios and they thought they were incredibly lucky to be working with this celebrated element that was written about in magazines and newspapers and sung about on broadway and the idea of working with this substance was you know just incredible to them they thought they were amazingly lucky and the thing i just want to mention and i'm sure your listeners are anticipating it is that the very prologue of the book, which, as we've said, you know, starts in in 1901. 
And it starts in 1901 because that is when the first person is harmed by radium. Mm -hmm. And you have this very strange thing happening because we know in 1901 that radium will destroy human tissue. The book opens with this scientist receiving a radiation burn from radium. But what happens is scientists start putting radium to use in treating cancers and people think, well, it cures cancer. And even to this day, we still use radium to treat certain kinds of cancer. Mm -hmm. And people saw what it could do. And that's why this health industry sprung up around it, because the companies wanted, you know, that were controlling radium, wanted to exploit this very powerful substance. So they ignored evidence about it destroying human tissue. They thought okay, well, perhaps a large amount will do that. But if we only put a small amount in our chocolate and our butter and our tablets, perhaps we could sell that and package that as a boon to help. Right. And I think we also have to remember that at this point, the medical awareness of the human body was practically still dark ages. We knew hardly nothing compared to what we know now. Yeah, that, I mean, that is true to say, but it, it's also true to say that people um, died of radium poisoning even before the first radium girl picked up her brush right. um, on the eve of the First World War. You know, that's the really shocking thing when I started delving into the records and the archives of this subject. You know, there was a deliberate ignorance, perhaps certainly a, a deliberate willfulness to ignore evidence to the contrary that said radium was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the important thing to say is that radium was very rare at that time. It's a very costly element to extract from the ore. So a single gram of radium at the time we're talking about costs the equivalent today of $2.2 million. And because it was so expensive and so rare, the radium companies who were mining it and exploiting it basically could control to a monopolizing extent all of the knowledge about it. So if mm. they wanted to ignore, for example, the woman in Germany who died in 1912 from radium poisoning, they could. And they would publish their own journals with all their own research that was saying radium was safe for people to eat and, right. you know, drink and, and all of this sort of thing. And so this is why the radium girls thought it was so safe because radium companies could control all the knowledge about it and they were quiet about all the other worrying signs and symptoms of the dangers that it had. So I think this brings up the relevancy to today. We'll go straight to that and then we'll bounce back to the book okay. in a little bit. So let's see, I'm, I'm writing a novel and the reason I mention this is because I'm specifically targeting 2009 as the starting point mm -hmm. for the novel. And yeah. the reason is that I want the novel to follow behind its publishing date by about a decade. So I'm aiming okay. for 2019. And the reason for that is that what I want is I want readers to be living in the real world, the novel's based in the real world, knowing what happened over the past decade and reading about characters mm -hmm. a decade ago who might have a conversation where someone will roll their eyes and say, oh, you're just being, you know, overly concerned. There's no way that could happen. What are you talking about? The real estate yeah. market is going to collapse. It's the strongest market mm -hmm. in the world. If, yeah. if I can pull into my story 
real world things that people warned us about. See, that's the thing. When it came to the collapse mm. of the real estate market across the planet and, and everything, regulators were screaming and being shut down, ignored mm. and dismissed. So mm. there's all these situations in the modern world where corporations have so much control and power and influence on media and influence on regulatory agencies that yep. if they're going to make a buck, they can keep things quiet that go against their best. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, I mean, yeah. yeah. We, as you say, we see this time and time again. You know, the tobacco industry is an, is another example. You mm -hmm. know, this this is what we see happening. And I've, you know, had responses from readers reading the Radium Girls where they share their own experiences of industrial poisoning or their own experiences. And that's the chilling thing about the book. And, I, you know, without spoiling it for readers in right. the epilogue, we kind of, I kind of hint at that. And it's sobering and chilling. And I think a lot of readers come away from the book um, feeling all too well, you know, why don't we listen to the stories from the past because they can teach us so much and yet we somehow refuse to listen. And why don't we listen to the stories of the present when you've got a bunch of canaries in the coal mine and they're all getting yeah. sick and they're all dying and yet this big giant, you know, huge like um, um, white noise machine just starts yeah. chanting out whatever it is that's supportive of the corporation or the organization that's yeah. going to make their profits. And it just drowns out all those little true, real tragedies. It, it does. And I, and I think, you know, all those cases we've just talked about, it has taken years um, for, for people to, to get justice or to be heard. And when we look back, we say, you know, why didn't we listen to those mm -hmm. housing experts that said the bubble was about to burst? Why didn't we listen to the people saying that radium was, you know, highly dangerous? Why didn't we listen? You know, I, I don't know what the answer is to that reason. I, I think, as you say, there's a lot of white noise put out or diversionary tactics as well. You know, don't look at this injustice that's happening here. Look over here, you know, mm -hmm. see this new shiny thing that people can be distracted by. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the message of hope that we can take from this is, again, with all those cases we've cited, the truth did eventually out. And I know from readers that I've spoken to, when you look at the stories from history, you know it takes time. Yeah. But in every case, eventually, you know, yes, it was far too late, but eventually justice did triumph. And there is hope to be found in that, I think. And there is you know, as devastating and as wrong as it is that it takes so long for injustice to be righted. We just have to take hope in the fact that eventually people do get there. And for everyone struggling with such a battle today, I hope they will take inspiration from the courage and tenacity and perseverance of the Radium Girls in their own personal battles that they're still waging today. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what was so, as you said, you know, the very beginning of the story is when Madame Curie discovered radium and then it moves on to the mm -hmm. first doctor who actually suddenly realized I have this huge giant burn and I'm in agony and what's going on? Oh, wait, the radium, you know, that was in my pocket mm -hmm. for like weeks or whatever. So um, so we have all these, you know, different buildups and then World War One hits and we have a bunch of these, these girls were not just... Um, lip pointing but if i understand there is also literally like um it was in the air like like um floating around like they were just covered their skins were covered yeah. with what was it a fine dust i believe that was that, used that's right 
in in the doll painting studios each girl mixed her own paint so mm-hmm. she was given um, the material, they called it, which was this fine powdered radium mixed with zinc sulfide that would shimmer and shine. And they'd mix that with water and adhesive to, to make the paint. Mm-hmm. And so you're absolutely right. Because they had access to this fine powdered radium, it would cover them in the studio, you know, and they literally in, in the New Jersey studio, because the book centers on two dial painting studios in New Jersey and in Illinois. And in the New Jersey studio, the girls used to be brushed down so that all the sparkling particles, which, as I've said, were hugely expensive because radium Mm -hmm. was such an expensive substance. They'd be brushed down in the dark room every day so that they weren't, you know, taking too much away with them. Mm-hmm. And but then would it be like swept it, up off the ground or something like that? and then Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then put back into the paint for the following day. For the girls, as they've said in their own accounts, the glow of that shining dust and the glow of the paint was part of the appeal. Right. And actually, because, because the girls used to get covered in the dust, no matter what they did, and even if they were brushed off, they used to actually wear their party dresses to the plant mm-hmm. so that when they went out at night after they'd finished work, they would be shimmering and shining in their party frocks, you know, mm-hmm. as they go down to the music halls or the speakeasies. And the girls were nicknamed the ghost girls because it, they had this kind of ethereal greenish glow about them. And right. they said as they walked home through the streets of Orange, New Jersey, they glowed like ghosts in the dark. Right. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's very interesting that that was the name given for people who were later going to suffer so horribly and die well, so it's young. Haunting, literally yeah. haunting. Literally, yeah. yeah. So let's see. They're doing their thing, and then people started to get sick. And I want to remind our listeners that this was before our society, the American society. I'm I'm not sure about Britain, but this was before America decided that women were actually smart enough or capable enough to be able to do this thing called voting. <laughs> so yep. women had no vote. And imagine what the male patriarchy and the people of your society think of you if you are terminally a child because children have no vote and women have no vote. Basically, you're never allowed into adulthood except as like basically a servant, wife, servant, caregiver, whatever. So these girls, as they started to get sick, they there were doctors and then eventually, if I understand correctly, most lawyers like really sort of wouldn't touch their cases and the corporations right. did a bunch of media, you know, slandering of these women. I mean, it was bad. Tell us a little bit about the hurdles that these women had to overcome and many of them died in the process. Yeah, well, as you say, you know, women didn't have the vote and they didn't have a voice either. So when the girls start to get sick and they try to speak up about it, um, they are completely silenced. So the very first hurdle of, you know, that they had to face to begin with was to get radium recognized as the thing that was making them sick even though it was obvious to the women themselves, because one thing to say about the job is that, as I say, because these girls thought they were so lucky to be working in this studio with 
this glamorous wonder drug element. They encouraged lots of their friends and sisters and cousins to join them. So you ended up with whole sets of siblings painting at the studio. And that, for me, was one of the most moving parts of the story to read about Marguerite and Sarah Carlo or the Magia sisters, you know, four of whom actually ended up all working together um, at the studio. And I focus on three of them in the book. Mm-hmm. And what happened when the women started to get sick is that even though everyone, you know, everyone in authority, the companies and the doctors were not kind of drawing those connections between the women's illnesses because of the networks of female friendship and solidarity that the women had they would talk amongst each other and say well I'm sick and you know Hazel down the road is sick and my sister's sick and they were the ones that initially realized that it must be their work that was killing them and hurting them you know, because there could be no other connection, you know, and they knew they could see it on the faces of their friends that they were all becoming ill. So what these girls had to do was to overturn the received wisdom of the age that radium was safe, which was obviously a huge, huge battle um, because the radium companies who were making so much money out of all these, you know, radium chocolate and the lingerie and cosmetics and that whole entire industry, they wanted to shut them down and silence them. So they would dismiss the women's claims as, you know, female hysteria, which often happens when there's a female occupational illness. You know, the, the women are kind of declared to be, you know, kicking up a stink about nothing you know it's just it's just female hysteria um they were discredited so they were you know there were slurs made about the women so about molly magia for example who was mistakenly buried on a death certificate for syphilis Mm -hmm. um which as you can imagine having a sexually transmitted infection particularly at this time that we're talking about and particularly because she was a young unmarried girl Mm -hmm. you know these are the kind of slurs they cast on the women's characters. The companies hired private detectives to dig up dirt, not only on the women, but also their families. You know, there was an example of the husband of one of the women who was arrested on a charge of insanity. And they tried to get him thrown into an asylum because, you know, he was obviously trying to fight on behalf of his wife and her friends. Mm -hmm. And the companies used every, you know, method at their disposal to try and, Uh, to try and silence these women. So, uh, you know, another press statement the company put out was these women were sick when they started. You know, it's not our fault. You know, we were a kind company that took on these, you know... um, We have classism. Yeah, and weak individuals. You know, we out of the goodness of our heart, we gave these weak women a job and now they've turned on us and they're trying to say it's all our fault that they've got sick. But they were sick when they started, which obviously was not true. And I want to point out that all of this is the stuff of soap operas and plays and stories and the fictional world, all of this stuff, you know, they say, um, what's that saying about how you couldn't, um, you can't make this up or, you know, uh, reality is stranger than fiction. You know, all of this stuff is, it makes for really, really good fictional novels. And yet Mm. this is absolutely concretely true. true What happened, evidentially based, proven. So what we know is that high class, economically comfortable human beings who have their business opportunities threatened by the suffering of, in this case, lower class, less 
regarded or valued humans who are considered perhaps disposable will go to illegal, criminal, and immoral lengths to protect their pocketbook. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but there is a long history of this being absolutely functionally true. And to believe it's not true today is to probably be actually be um, not, um, I don't know, that would be crazy to think it doesn't happen today as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think as we were talking earlier, you know, it definitely happens today. And we might not know at this very moment in time what the latest scandal is, but it will be going on even as you and I are, are speaking. Because in a way, as horrid as it is to say it, it, it seems to be human nature. If you're comfortable, you try and protect that comfort at any cost, you know, whether it's immoral or not. And I think one of the interesting things for me oftentimes and what I really love about studying, I mean, archaeology was one of my loves in college, mm. is that when we we reached a point of usually I look at it as the point of the development of agriculture, that prior to agriculture when you were um, hunter foraging groups, you could only have such such a population. You could only have so many people in that system that were surviving. And in in those smaller tribal situations where there's only 150 of you in a tribe and maybe 89 in the next tribe over, you know, so many miles away and you guys, whatever, mm -hmm. that each person has inherent value. If you lose 10% of your population when there's only 120 of you, that's a huge dent. You know, mm -hmm. and that each each child that's born is looked at as a new valuable resource because there's only so many of us. But once human population reached a certain point where there really were more humans than you needed for your systems to function, we shift into this this, this sort of the classism development, whether you're looking at India or America or Britain, it doesn't matter, classism's everywhere, and you end up with the disposables. Yeah, and and, that, and that's definitely how the company saw these women you know they saw them as expendable it, it didn't matter you know and, and particularly in the heyday of dial painting um you know there was always another girl to take her place when right. one got sick you know when her teeth started falling out or her you know her leg started shortening because the radium was in her bones and was attacking her body from the inside out she would either be fired for being sick or would be forced to quit her job because she was too ill to work. And there was always another girl there happy to take her place. Right. And in fact, in New Jersey, the only reason the company finally started investigating what was going on was because these rumors, you know, spread along the back streets of Orange and the girl started not showing up to work. You know, the, the, the workforce was depleted because right. of the rumors about the fact that dial painting might not be the glamorous, safe profession that the women had always been told. And so only at that stage did the company start looking into it once it became bad for business. And if I understand correctly, even like quite a few years after the first girls became sick and started to die, they actually opened additional plants in other places. And just, just can, like, what, what was this, like 20 some odd years or how many years yeah. did they just continue going before finally there was an effect um, that the women were able to have? 
well, I mean, they they continued going for decades. And right. the thing that the, ra- the, the the Iranian girls that I write about in the book achieved is that they finally put safety standards in place. That's the difference. But radium dial painting actually went on for decades after this. Right. Um, and yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right that different studios kept opening. And one of the really shocking things for me and something that had never been done before with this story was to trace those two locations, New Jersey and Illinois. And the New Jersey girls, their dial painting studios opened, as I've said, in 1917 on the cusp of the First World War. And the girls there therefore start getting sick you know, sooner than the women in Illinois because their studio only opens in 1922. Right. And the thing that was really shocking for me was to trace those two chronologies and see how they overlapped and yet no one was talking to each other on a national stage so that when the girls in New Jersey get sick and, you know, people finally start investigating, it was on the 30th of January, 1923, that the first expert, a chemist called Zamatolsky, identified that it was probably the radium that had caused sickness in the New Jersey girls. Now, the Illinois studio only opened in September 1922. And I just thought when I was reading through the archives and found this letter and and realized that the authorities knew at that stage that at least it should be investigated, even if they weren't willing to take the chemist's, you know, theory as truth. You just thought if at that point they had told dial painters all across America, you, you need to, you know, stop putting the brushes in your mouth and, and mm-hmm. stop using this radium until we fully investigated, you know, what's safe. Um, think how many lives could have been saved. That was really shocking to me right. to see that it was known in New Jersey. And yet they didn't save any of those women in Illinois when they could. Right. And the other thing to say about those safety standards and again, a mind boggling fact about this whole story is that in the same companies where the girls are putting their brushes in their mouths, you have lab workers, largely male lab workers, mm-hmm. who because they're handling large amounts of radium, are protected with lead aprons and they're not allowed to touch the radium with their bare hands. They're issued with ivory-tipped tongs. Right, and right. dichotomy and difference just summarizes the whole issue and we've talked earlier about you know, female disenfranchisement mm-hmm. and that's almost a, a sign of it right there you know the difference was the amount of radium they were handling but in the same company literally meters apart from the doll painting studio and the lab you've got different workers some protected and some offered no protection at all right you got to protect the husbands and um hmm. and the unmarried girls well yeah you know right yeah 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 so i'm gonna have to stop real quick and do a station identification we're gonna dive back in again Mm -hmm. so folks if you have just joined us my name is march twisdale producer and host of prose poetry and purpose here on voice of vashon today i'm talking with kate moore the author of the radium girls we'll get right back to that in a moment but first i want to thank those who helped to keep voice of vashon on the air such as island spring organics 40 years of organic, non-GMO soy foods made daily right here on Vashon Island. Tours available at www.islandspringorganics.com or call 206-463-9848. 
VOV programming support is also provided by Vashon Center for the Arts. A center for the arts on Vashon Island, VCA, provides quality arts experiences for all ages and creates opportunities for artists to perform and exhibit their work. Find out what's happening at Vashon Center for the Arts dot org. Okie doke. So, oh my goodness, I totally could talk to you for two hours about this book. (laughs) (laughs) It's an incredible story. They're incredible women, absolutely incredible women. And this book is all about them. This is their story. And it's, you know, my purpose in writing it was to put the women center stage because, you know, some, I have to say most people that I've met, that I've talked to about the book knew nothing about the story. Right. A handful thought they remembered hearing about it in their science class at school but no one could ever tell you the names Grace Fryer, Catherine Dunahoo, Catherine Sharp, Pearl Payne who were the women that I write about in the book and for me it was like the individual women had been forgotten you know the Mm -hmm. radium girls as a group have largely been forgotten as I say perhaps just the odd lesson in a science class here and there but the individual women themselves had kind of vanished behind this anonymous moniker of the radium girls well and if we're lucky they will actually make a movie out of this because visuals are so powerful as well i mean i think it's sort of i I think the women the women deserve one frankly you know they deserve that that treatment and they deserve for a much wider audience you know to to see their story and feel their story and for me Yes, of course, the story involves science and it involves law because of all the workers' mm-hmm. rights and legal changes that the this women, you know, this incredible kind of almost test case for workers' rights, you know, established. They have left an extraordinary legacy. But for me, what was interesting was not the law and the science. It was the women, their personal stories, their personal journeys from that very upbeat believing she was lucky woman getting her first job, you know, a pay packet, the women were paid really, really well. You know, they were in the top 5% of female wage earners nationally. And to go on that journey with Catherine, with Grace and see, you know, how do they cope as they start to get sick, as they start to see their their families and their sisters and their families suffering because of this. And how do they cope with being silenced and shunned? And how do they find the strength and the courage in the face of unbelievably tragic, horrific suffering, you know, what the radium did to them physically. Oh my goodness. Almost kind of defies belief. It's just horrific. And yet they back through that pain to stand up and fight for justice, not just for themselves, but for others. You know, one of my very favorite quotes in the whole book comes from Grace Fryer herself. And she says when she is about to take the company to court, She says, it's not for myself I'm thinking, but for the hundreds of other girls to whom this may serve as an example. Right. And I think that altruism is extraordinary too. Yeah. I get, I got, I just got chills. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, okay. You had mentioned a minute ago, I want to make sure for folks who maybe are just chiming in, because I agree with you earlier, you mentioned that it was shocking to discover that there were internal memos, so to speak, um, about the Mm -hmm. concerns that there was a recognized and respected male scientist who had noted the concerns, and yet those were ignored, and the next, um, I think it was the Illinois factory was open, 
and actions were not taken. And so two thoughts on that. One is um, you mentioned very at the beginning was that a lot of these dials were not just for like someone who's here in the States who wants a little clock by their bed that they can see in the middle of the mm -hmm. night, but these were used militarily. So there were military contracts, I would imagine, the government yep. wanted to be able to fly and move throughout Europe in the dark. And the only way you could have all your lights off so that it's harder for them to bomb your planes out of the air would be if you had illuminated dials everywhere, right? Exactly so, right. right. And of course, this, this was part of the problem when the girls are, are kind of speaking up about the industrial poisoning that is happening to them and the, and this, you know, kind of silent danger that is threatening, you know, thousands of young women is that the companies that they're trying to speak out against are not just powerful financially, but they've got all these contacts in government and so on as well. So they're immensely powerful corporations and, you know, of course, as you briefly mentioned earlier, when the girls try to sue and, and to try to get some kind of legal justice, many of the lawyers actually turn them down, you know, believing the company's publicity that it couldn't possibly be the radium that was hurting them. Mm -hmm. You know, lawyers who felt afraid to take on these right. powerful corporations who could, you know, they had the money to be able to eke out the fight for as long as it took. And, you know, one of the lawyers who helped the women, um, a man called Jay Cook, he actually ran out of money. And so he had to said, say, I'm really sorry, I can't help you anymore because there's, you know, I, I can't afford to continue this fight. Right. But the company could afford to fight for as long as it took sure. for the women essentially to die. That was what was they were hoping for. And again, it, it's the tenacity of these girls, you know, particularly Catherine Donahue, who I write about, who gave evidence on her deathbed mm -hmm. at home. She was too weak to go to court. She'd gone to court and she collapsed. And, you know, the, the judge said that proceedings could not continue. And she said, I am going to continue, but you'll have to come to me. And so they did a, a kind of deathbed testimony at mm -hmm. her home. You know, that's how amazing these women were and how determined they were to hold these companies to account. Right. So um, an example of how this is not an unusual paradigm that you have the government aware that there's a potential problem, but not necessarily acting on behalf of the people or a minority group within the people. And also the scientific world, knowing something's going on, even discussing it publicly within the scientific realm, but it doesn't yeah. hit the public realm. So one example of that is the Tuskegee syphilis trials in America. Mm -hmm. You know about those already? I, I don't know. Illuminate me further. Okay, so illuminate. Ha, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> Sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> so um, my number's going to be a little bit indistinct on the beginning. Roughly 1936, the U.S. Department of Health, the, the U.S. government, Department of Health, national level, decided they wanted to study the long-term effects of syphilis. This was before antibiotics were discovered um, and found to cure syphilis, and that was in the early 40s. So about six years ahead of time, they went down to the south, and they found some black, poor, sharecropper men, and they basically enrolled them in a program, and they said, in exchange for being in the program, we're going to draw your blood on a regular basis, we're going to do medical checkups, and when you eventually die, we'll pay your funeral costs. 
So this was sort of almost legit, even though the people were being lied to. So this was before mm. World War II, um, before we started to really develop our human rights of informed consent. We, you know, yeah. This was back then, right? But um, these people did have syphilis. It was going to kill them. But they weren't told. So they weren't able to stop having sex with their wives. They were not able to mm. avoid having children because they didn't want to pass it on. They were mm. kept in the dark. Well, in the early 40s, when it was discovered that penicillin would cure syphilis, they went back down and they intentionally told the health communities surrounding this group, this region, do not treat these people. We mm-hmm. don't want them treated with the penicillin. We want wow. them to continue to have syphilis until it eventually kills them. They're part of this long-term study, which we expect to take decades. So wow. they intentionally left talk about disposable people who were low class mm-hmm. and considered unimportant. Yeah. And this is all white, wealth class, you know, government, yeah. doctors and of whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and well, they're, well, I won't go into too much detail, but a lot of people know that in 1972, finally someone in the study became so uncomfortable that they went ahead and leaked the story to a reporter who then took it to the public. And that was when the government was shamed into shutting down the program in 1972, 30 years after the cure had been found. And, but what people don't know, and I only discovered this recently, and I was shocked like you were, was that a few years prior to that, I think about six to eight years before that, I have come across and read actual documentation. These were peer-reviewed, published articles by scientists in scientific journals discussing the human rights aspect Mm. of the Tuskegee syphilis trial and expressing concern that it's inappropriate that these people have not been told what's going on and that that was being discussed in the scientific community years before it got released to the public and then there was a public outcry. And I'm wondering if you found something like that coming up in this story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yes, definitely. And I mean, there's there's several examples of the of the kind of thing that you're talking about. You know, the doctors having all the knowledge, so very often they didn't tell the radium girls that they were suffering from fatal radiation poisoning. You know, often they kept that knowledge from them. Sometimes at the request of the families, there were a couple of people that I found where they kind of said, you know, so and so doesn't know that she has radium poisoning, and she, you know the family don't want her to know often it was the doctors making that decision themselves you know partly in the belief that it would um you know be better for their patient's general outlook not to know um right. but they weren't giving them that that choice you know so mm-hmm. so a lot of the time they kept the information from the women wow. uh, the other thing is that is that yes definitely uh, there was discussion lots of discussion actually lots of articles published within the medical community and the scientific community about the dangers of radium that just didn't you know seep out as you say into that public consciousness you know mm-hmm. one of the uh, one of those kind of jaw dropping moments um, that was cited in the court case is that the radium company itself had published an article about that was headed radium injurious effects and they published that, you know, before the first girl died. It was in the early 1920s that they published that. Um, so the company itself, you know, was publishing information to say radium was dangerous. And yet at the same time, putting out press statements to say that 
the girls couldn't possibly have been harmed by it. Right. And Jeez. I think one of yeah, I know. And I think for me, one of the most shocking elements of the book, because and I think because you know, particularly in in this day and age, although the example you've just cited is relatively recent, we kind of think of doctors as being you know good people. You know, the the kind of first sentence of the Hippocratic Oath is you know first do no harm. Right. And there are doctors in the Radium Girls and in their story who were on the side of the company. So they were testing the women and telling them their health was fine, telling them that it couldn't be the radium. It was just a a kind of bug that had gone around the studio. And that's why they were all sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, doctors who are, you know, ignoring all evidence to the contrary and are in the employ of the companies and therefore are perpetuating this myth of radium safety, even when it's kind of obvious that it's not safe at all. But these doctors would swear by it. Right, 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 right. And, you know, just because a human being goes out and gets a medical degree doesn't mean that they stop being a human being. You know, we we can have flaws and mistakes in our character no matter what our job. So I always try to remind people that even though we want to believe the best of everyone, ultimately when we go home, we're the one who has to live with whatever medical decisions were made. And so you have Mm. to be active patients and really pay attention and and really engage in, in a partnership with our, our yeah. medical providers because they are mostly really wonderful, good people. And yet at the same time, there are doctors every year who are losing their license or going to jail sometimes for selling opioids to make money on the side. And mm. so, yeah, I, yeah. Yes, the humanity of the medical field. <laughs> <laughs> it's still there, yeah, folks. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I think humanity is an interesting question as well, particularly, you know, when it comes to this, this story of the radium girls or any of these other cases that we've been talking about, you know, because, right. you know, obviously, in my book, for me, the girls are the heroines. And, you know, the flip side of that is that the company officials are the villains. But they are still men, you know, they're ordinary men. And, and I want to make a specific point of saying this isn't an anti-men book you know it it happens because particularly because of the era in which this history took place you know the men were generally the ones with the power they were the executives they were in those jobs of authority but the men in the book are also the husbands who were amazing in the face of their wives debilitating illnesses you know who carry you know tom dunner who carried Catherine around in his arms when she got too sick to walk you know and we also meet doctors like Harrison Martland and lawyers like Raymond Berry and Leonard Grossman who went above and beyond to help these girls yeah so it's not an anti-men book but there are obviously gender issues that are raised um within it um but for me it was important that even though the company officials are and I'm putting quote marks here the villains they are still individuals they are still men and i and i think it's an interesting question you know why don't they speak up is it fearfulness because they've been handling radium and if they admit that it's dangerous that you know what is their own state of health going to be right is it a deliberate willfulness to not want to leave the bad publicity to want to keep perpetuating all that money rolling in you know to not want to question too much to dig too deep Right. You know, I think there's some quite interesting questions raised there in terms of what is their motivation, you know, for what they did. Why do they keep fighting these women, even in the face of incontrovertible evidence that radioactivity is harmful to health? Well, 
And and ultimately, what is the purpose or what does money do for the male psyche? There's really sort of like two categories. It's not really like money is something that makes people happy just inherently. It's like either it's a status symbol when comparing themselves to other men in a very patriarchal society mm-hmm. or it's how you provide for your beloved ones, which is your wife and your children, those who are dependent on you. So a man who's trying to provide a good life to his family and has every opportunity to deny a story that would hurt his family is going to probably really want to hope the story's not real, you know? Mm. Um, I guess a lot of people who work in the oil industry hope global warming isn't actually happening. Yeah. There's yeah. most exactly. humans. That's a good point. Yeah. Humans have a, a strong internal motivation to believe the best of themselves and to be challenged and have someone suggest that what you're doing is actually hurting others is a really painful thing to consider. So it's quite mm. human if someone else comes along and says, no, 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 that's not true. You're not hurting anyone. Yeah. Well, if you have to choose a narrative, that's the preferred narrative, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So compassion is super important. We've got to keep the compassion in there. So there's a book called The Jungle. Have you heard of it before? It's written by Upton Sinclair. No, I I don't know it. Okay. So Upton Sinclair wrote this book. It was about the meatpacking industry and basically sort of like New York. And it was the early Mm -hmm. 1900s. And he was writing about what was happening with all the immigrants who would show up and they'd be brought into the meatpacking industry and all the young, strapping, healthy kids would show up and they'd get hired and they'd be surrounded by, you know, the late 20s and the 30-year-old men who looked tired and worn down who weren't getting hired because it was mm-hmm. like a day-by-day hiring. So you'd stand there and mm-hmm. wave around and the boss would look around and whoever looked healthiest, he'd point to them. They'd go in and work for the day. And so it starts with this young man and his newly immigrated family and goes through all the real, accurate things that were happening to mm-hmm. immigrants both in that industry and um, being sold mortgages for houses that you don't speak the language and you're being, you know, basically yeah. lied to, blah, blah, blah. So that is something I think you might want to check out that book sometime. It's a- mm, amazing. That sounds great. It's yeah. fictional, but it did the same thing that these women did. It changed the laws in the country. Mm-hmm. It was Um, Mm -hmm. very instrumental in changing workers' rights and things like that. So let's shift in the final quarter of the hour that we have here. What's the lasting result when it comes to workers' protections and rights that came out of the suffering that these women went through and their tenacity? Yeah, their legacy is actually quite mind-bogglingly extensive. So the legal case, just to address that first, you know, the Radium Girls case against their companies that had poisoned them was one of the first cases where employers were held responsible for the health of their employees. And so that was obviously a really landmark ruling. And it's partly thanks to cases like that and many others that kind of came along the way, kind of building this wall of pressure that eventually led in the 1970s to the establishment of OSHA, which now works nationally in the United States to protect workers And actually, since it's been established, they estimate that about 10,000 lives per year have been saved because of that establishment. So that's a really important element. And even along the way of their legal case, um, you know, I talk in the book about how 
the women are getting the laws changed so that more diseases are compensable, for example. So before the radium girls start their case, I think there's only nine diseases in the state of New Jersey that if you get one of those, you'll be okay. The employer will pay out. But anything else that is not on that list, you know, you're, you're kind of done for. And so they were instrumental in kind of changing that aspect of the law too. Mm-hmm. But I also want to talk about their legacy in terms of safety standards. And that's particularly important in terms of what America went on to do in the rest of the 20th century. So initially, you know, the radium girls eventually win their case um, at the end of the 1930s. Literally in in 1939 is when the ruling comes down um, to say they've won finally after appeal after appeal from the companies. And that same year, of course, um, the Second World War begins in Europe. And so immediately there's, again, another demand for all these luminous glow-in-the-dark dials. But but thanks to the radium girls that I write about in the book, the women from the First World War and Roaring Twenties, we know that handling radium is dangerous. And so that second wave of dial painters are protected by safety standards. And during the Second World War, America embarks on the Manhattan Project. And it is directly because of the radium girls that safety standards were put in place for that project. So Glenn Seaborg, who was a leading scientist working on the Manhattan Project, wrote in his diary that as he was walking through the lab one night, he had a vision of the radium girls and the harm that they had come to. And so he insisted that they do biomedical research into the effects of the plutonium that they were using on the Manhattan Project. And it was found to be biomedically very, very similar to radium. And so they took the safety standards that had been put in place for dial painting and they transferred them to the Manhattan Project. So all those workers were protected. And then if you move even further on this is the legacy these amazing women have as we move even further on into the 20th century you know what happens after the second world war well there's an arms race there's the cold war there's all these atomic tests as you know america and russia and britain and france and everyone else is trying to develop these you know nuclear bombs and they're testing them above ground you know you're sure everyone has seen the kind of famous images of you know the mushroom clouds in the nevada desert and you know these very famous images from the, the 1950s and people started to get worried because all that radioactive fallout drifting back down to earth getting into the human food chain you know they were secretly doing tests on dead bodies, essentially, and they were finding that, you know, those bodies were taking in that radioactive fallout and, you know, leaving a trace. And they thought, how on earth can we try to predict what's going to happen in the in the future? Because they were dealing with new radioactive elements. But the, the only thing they knew was that those new radioactive elements were very similar to radium. Mm-hmm. And so the radium girls were studied by scientists for decades. Those that had passed away that I write about in the book, their tissue samples and, you know, bones that had been retained mm-hmm. at the time they were treated, those were studied. The radium girls who had not died, because right. not all of them died from their poisoning, voluntarily submitted to testing by scientists for decades. 
they had x-rays they had bone marrow biopsies they fasted and then went in for you know extra scientific and medical tests and it was partly because of those studies on the radium girls that president kennedy signed the atomic test ban treaty and you know brought an end to those tests in the nevada desert and underwater and you know think of the damage that did to the planet and the human race and it was partly thanks to those studies on the radium girls that that happened and in fact even beyond that they were studied because scientists realized that no one had ever suffered and hopefully will never suffer again the way that the radium girls did in terms of ingesting radium and having that internal radiation in their bodies staying with them you know, for decade after decade, those that survived and right. of course kind of became like a, a ticking time bomb in their bones because they never knew when it might get them, when a cancerous tumor might begin to grow. And yet these girls persevered, as I say, their altruism was amazing. They kept submitting for testing and scientists say that it's thanks to them really that we know anything about, you know, internal radiation in human beings. You know, they have provided an absolutely invaluable tranche of knowledge that we still benefit from every day. You know, they work in the nuclear industries or they work in the radiation industries and they know they are safe because of the radium girls. Because the girls spoke out and because they weren't silenced, they were determined not to be silenced by the companies. They left us a legacy. They kind of shouted a warning that now protects people, even today, who are working in these fields. And I just think that is an extraordinary legacy of them to have left. Right. You know, they will do it. They're willing. They're happy to do it if it will help just one person. Right. Right. Okay, so um, folks out there who are listening, we I am talking with Kate Moore. My name is March Twisdale. You're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose here on Voice of Ashon, 101.9 FM. We have been discussing just one of her many written works. This is called The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Um, excellent book, as I said before. Um, Thank you. Yes, yes. Th- there's a section in the middle with photos. And it's very readable. It's a glorious book. I love the co- wonderful cover. Whoever did your cover, tell them they're amazing. They are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Source Books is my publisher, and they're fantastic. <laughs> yes, they did an excellent job. And then I want people to know they can go to www.kate-more.com. So um, maybe at some point I can have you back on the show. We can explore a little bit more in depth what goes on because everyone knows about ghostwriters. I'm not sure we all fully understand what that means. And I'd love to get into that. I'd be happy to. One thing I'd say actually is that I feel very much like the Radium Girls book. I kind of feel like they're ghostwriter because what Mm. I did in my research was to uncover their real words, you know, their words in diaries and letters and court testimonies. And so I was very much stitching together the book, you know, and their narrative and interviewing their families about them. And for me, I was just trying to give them a voice in the same way that as a ghostwriter, I try to give a voice and express the message of those people that I work with when I'm their ghostwriter. And for me, 
that's what I was doing for the Radium Girls, just helping to give them a voice. Well, one of the women I write about in the book, um, Dial painted for only a couple of months and she um, had devastating effects, you know, lost her arm and, you know, had to amputate her arm because of the cancer and, and things right. like that. So even a small amount of exposure, when you're ingesting it, right, it goes into your bones. And once it's in your bones, you cannot get it out. And so one of the newspaper headlines was they called the radium girls the women doomed to die mm. uh, or the society of the living dead and it was a death sentence that hung over you and again the tenacity of these women in facing that death sentence but being determined to leave their mark on society before they left um, is quite astounding yes it is all right we are officially out of time for this interview. <laughs> All righty. Thank you again very much for joining me, thank Kate. Thank you. It was fascinating. I had a wonderful time. Thank you. Prose Poetry and Purpose is where my guest writers come to share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. Kate, I think you have definitely achieved that goal. Thank you.